0: Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Jack Cotton with Sotheby's International Realty in Osterville, Massachusetts. Last year, he closed 80 transactions with a total sales volume of $63 million. His average sales price was 797000 of which 10% were buyers and 90% were sellers. He has a three-member team, one agent associate, one administrative associate, and one team leader. Jack Cotton has been an agent for 40 years, is an author of several luxury real estate books, and works the Cape Cod market. Jack was also listed in the top 250 salespeople in the nation by the Wall Street Journal and Real Trends. In this call, Jack talks about starting his real estate company in his college dorm room, locating his first office in the back room of a plumbing supply warehouse, not selling a single home for the first 14 months. How he gained respect and expertise by writing valuation reports. The way he fell into luxury real estate and ended up selling multi-million dollar homes. The definition of a maverick and why you need one to break into any market. The number one thing luxury home clients want from you. How you can break into luxury home sales. Why he uses a two and a half step listing presentation. How showmanship sets you apart from your competition, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, Real Estate Agent Lead Generation Television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Jack. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. Hey, Jack, it's great to have you. Jack, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, that's a great question because basically this is
1: all I have ever done. I started my real estate company in my dorm room in 1974 in college. So I had jobs in school, you know, you know, you have school-time jobs and jobs prior to school, but
0: my whole career has been this and nothing but this. I started my real estate company in 1974. What year of school was that? Your freshman, sophomore, junior? Well, this is a long story, but, you know, I went to a college outside of Boston
1: called Babson College. It's a four-year program. I did enter into a bet with somebody that... um uh, it was bet that I could I do the school in three years instead of four, and I won the bet It's sort probably of the dumbest bet I ever won, so <laughs> I started my company in my last year in May of my last year of nineteen seventy four I had no money, I thought I'd do everything. I actually interviewed in Boston to become a commercial real estate broker because I was a finance major, and I wanted to use all that I learned in my college career in finance. I love crunching numbers and everything. And I interviewed all over Boston for some of the larger commercial companies. And the more I did that, the more I realized that I did not belong up here. These people would chew me up and spit me out. So then I decided, well, you know what? I think selling houses is a pretty easy career. Pretty easy to start. I can do that. I'll just open up a company, and uh, when I graduate, and I'll get it started right now before school ends in my dorm room, and get some listings and stick them in the paper. And they sell. You rake in the money and do that over and over again. And it's as simple as it can be. And of course, when I started, I realized quickly that it was not quite so simple. How was that first year in the business? Well, the first year was a year of coming home. I lived at home at the time. And um, of coming home just about every day to the question, did you sell a house today? And the answer <laughs> was no. So it was actually a year, two months, three weeks, and four days before I sold my first house. There was a lot of times that first year where I decided to give it up uh, my father owned a plumbing supply company, and he's one who made a bet with me. And what he did was he gave me a desk in his warehouse, and I made my own signs. If you can imagine, <laughs> I cannot imagine anything more pathetic than somebody making their own signs. But I did because <laughs> I had no money. And um, we shared a phone, so when the phone rang at the warehouse. I never knew if somebody might be calling on one of my signs or an ad for a house or if they want to buy a toilet seat. So it was always like <laughs> Russian roulette when the phone rang. So I just didn't know, but that's where my first office was. And um, I just learned it was, that it wasn't as easy as I thought. Most people have the perception that, you know, it's the easiest business on the planet. All you need to do is stick a side of the eye, put it out of the paper, what else MLS and pretty soon the house is sold. You just you click, you collect a check. And obviously, as your listeners know, that is
0: absolutely, positively not the case. It's hard work. Well, Jack, it sounds like a really rough, rocky start. Why did you stick with it? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, this is what I was born to do.
1: I always, you know, we could always talk about our childhoods and what was great and what wasn't so great. And there were good times and there were times that were not so good. And, you know, I had some times that were not so good. And um don't need to go into that, but what I can say is that when times were not so good when I was growing up, I would retreat onto the, into the woods around where we lived, and I would go into one of the homes that I had built. Now, when I say home, I'm using that word loosely because we're talking about a tree house or the kind of crudely built fort that a kid would build. Because understand, back in the 1960s, Cape Cod was basically very, very undeveloped, but was beginning to be discovered, and a lot of homes are being constructed. So there was an endless supply of building materials for me. So I would build these little houses and tree houses all over the place in the woods around my house. And when things weren't so good, I would retreat into my own little space. And, you know, the sunlight would filter through the loose-fitting boards and light up the grain of the opposite wall, and I could smell that smell of fresh-cut wood. And slowly but surely slowly but surely, all would become right in my world inside that little house. And that's a feeling I just cannot get away from. And that's a feeling I think that I help people attain when they buy their dream homes here on Cape Cod, because whether it's a little house up in a tree that a kid built or a palatial mansion by the sea, it's where you go to escape from everything that's going on in the world. It's where you're, it's your oasis in the storms of life. It's where you celebrate the... The birth of new family members is where you mourn the passing of family members, where you celebrate milestones and anniversaries and triumphs in your family and in your own life. It's central to the very being of you. And I learned that at a very early age in my little crudely built houses. And I just cannot
0: get away from that feeling. And that's what drew me to the business. I pick up from that that you grew up on Cape Cod. I did. Well, let's let's dive into talking about your market. So just so everybody knows, where is Oysterville, Massachusetts. We actually say Oysterville, but it's on Cape Cod. It's on the southern shore of Cape Cod, overlooking Nantucket
1: Sound. It's a small village of about maybe four or 5,000 people. I'm not even sure how many people live here. In the summertime, obviously, it swells up to probably three or four times that. But it's a small, sleepy village. It was a wonderful place to grow up. It's still a wonderful place, but no towns to like they were back in the 50s and 60s just that way, but it's still pretty nice here. Very laid back but um, discovered as a luxury
0: hangout by the rich and famous people, especially those who live in the greater Boston area. Is Cape Cod, is that an island? Is it a peninsula? Technically, it's an island. We have a, a canal that separates us from
1: the mainland. It's a peninsula, I guess would be a better word, but we do have a canal that officially makes us an island with two bridges. And it's like, if you could take your right arm and extend it out straight, and then lift your hand up so your elbow's down at 90 degrees. That's what Cape Cod looks like. It looks like an arm flexing its biceps sticking out into the ocean. And if you um, if you move between your armpit and your elbow,
0: Osterville is halfway in between them, facing south overlooking Nantucket Sound. Please describe your current real estate market. There's two prices to look at here. The average sales price in my market is probably... A little bit south
1: of four hundred thousand dollars, high fees pushing four hundred. My personal average sales price is around eight hundred. I don't discriminate on price. I had a closing yesterday for a small commercial condo of one hundred eighty-five thousand dollars. It was so much work I could have sold the Empire State Building in New York and I saved a lot of time probably. But anyway, and I also sold one a month ago for thirteen over thirteen million.
0: So. But if you average it all out, it comes into around seven hundred ninety-four thousand dollars, just by average. Are you covering the gambit from the the low end entry all the way up to the high high end luxury, or do you focus your efforts on one end or the other? I'm known for high end. However, I do not discriminate on price. Or at least
1: I have not up until this point. So my belief is that I'm here to serve, and people in the lower price ranges need me more than do the people in the higher price ranges. So I discriminate more on location, geographic location, you know, if I think it's a good mix between myself and the people. I mean, I don't take every listing. In fact, I was just working on my plan for 2015. I was looking at the numbers for 2014, and I was a little bit discouraged because I noticed that my batting average on listing presentations, you would think somebody with four decades in the business would have like a 75%, 80% batting average. Well, In 2014, my batting average was 37%. So I listed 37% of the homes I went on and did presentations in. And I would say 100% of the ones I lost were were overpriced. And one of my associates mentioned when I was talking to him about this this morning, he said, well, it's interesting if you go down the list of the listings you didn't get. They're all still for sale. And all the ones that you did get are sold. So I felt a little better after that. But I, I do a lot of work, I guess, because... My pitch is maybe three for any one that I list. So the homes here, this is primarily a second home and retirement market. And the higher you go in price, the more prevalent that is because people who live on Cape Cod year-round just don't have the income to afford real expensive houses. So if you get over $500,000, the more you go over $500,000, the more likely it is that that buyer is going to be a second home buyer or a retirement buyer. There's very few people buying million dollar homes who are actually year rounders. So We're not saying none, but it's a small percentage of our market. It's predominantly second home and retirement. And the people who buy homes here that they're going to use for, gosh, well, we, we see people, people buying homes that they're going to use for three weeks a year. The average is eight to 10 weeks a year. And they may invest anywhere from, if they're going to be on and in the water, you know, three to four million up to my clients' is 19 the nineteen million dollar guy, I think he's probably in that house maybe four weeks a year.
0: That's a different clientele and and in a minute we're gonna dive into that. I wanna go back to the, the point you made earlier that you're you're only taking one in three listings. The two that you don't take out of the three, is that because you choose not to take them? Is that because the seller chooses not to hire you because you're sticking to a price? It's a combination of both and I'd probably take that and do
1: one-third, two-thirds again. So one-third, I don't take them to two-thirds. They're like, you know what, Jack? Thanks a lot, but we don't like your price. And I don't, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm at an age now where I don't really need to list every single house. And I try to convey that to other agents and what I teach or write, that you don't need to list every single house. Here's a concept. Why don't you just list the ones that are going to sell? A lot of agents have the mindset that they can't lose on a listing report. They need to do or say anything get that listing no matter what, and my philosophy is I've had this fantasy for my whole career and I'm getting close to realizing my fantasy, but my fantasy is a one-sentence listing presentation. And that would be, instead of all the work that I do now, and I work like crazy to do a listing presentation, I do a ton of work before I even show up for the first appointment, but my fantasy list of listing appointment is to walk into your house and sit down at your table to look you in the eye and say, Mike, tell me why I should take your listing. <laughs> have you tried that? Not in those exact words, but that's the mindset that I have when I go into a house. That's the mindset that you
0: need to have when you go in. I've never actually said those words, but um that's that's my fantasy. Have you ever asked that question during the listing presentation? Why should I take your listing? Yes. Yeah. You know what? I can't think of a time where I cannot think of an example of when I have used that. No. So it's more of an attitude than the actual question. It's metaphorical. I'm just saying that's my ultimate dream
1: listing presentation. One line. And everything I do is sort of working towards that. And even if I don't actually say that during a presentation, I have that mindset. So I am not invested in a listing contract on every appointment I go into. If, it, if things work out, if I like the people, if we can if work well together, if the price is right, if the motivation is there, then I'll do it. For example, I'm not opposed to taking an overpriced listing as long as the motivation is there. I'd rather take an overpriced listing with the motivation being there than to take a listing that's price right where the people don't really want to sell. And I've basically everything I've learned over my career I've learned the hard way or by screwing up. So I've learned what it's like to get a great listing at a great price and one person in the mix doesn't really want to sell the house. You bring in a great offer, even a full price offer, and they don't want to sell. That's, That's the pits. On the other hand, I understand in my situation in this market especially, a lot of our sellers tend to be second or third generation. The home is passed on and now there's three or four heirs, sometimes two to five heirs who own the property now. And you might have three out of five on the same page with regard to selling the property or two out of three but there's always one or two who see that home sale as a lottery ticket. Their share of that sale is going to solve all their problems so they have a unrealistic idea of where it's going to sell but I know that the motivation is there the five people can't continue to own this house so I will give them the time just like people give fine wine time to come into age I'll give my sellers time to come into understanding what the market really means for their property and wait it out. Sometimes it takes a year on the market and then it will finally sell. But again, I'd rather do that than take a home that's priced right with no motivation. Understand again, that if I do take a price that has the age, a house that has the age I can find one wine before it's gonna sell, that can't be my only listing. I need to sell a couple other things in the meantime. So it's, it's like they enter the pipeline at the top and
0: they have to work their way through and and come of age and get to the right vintage where they could actually sell. Until their motivation clicks in. Well, their motivation is always there. It's just their their acceptance of the market is not always there
1: until they experience it firsthand. They need to feel the agony to see sometimes. But then, you know, if every now and then, every now and then, Reg, you ever heard of Reg? No, what's Reg? R-E-G, uh, Reg, Real Estate God. And a <laughs> while, well, Reg... Uh, waves a magic wand, and you sell a house for, you know, you think it's going to sell for $6 million or sells for $9 million. So you just, every time, <laughs> you just, can that happens every now and then. So, so people cling under that hope when they hear about
0: that. And sometimes you have to let them come to terms with the fact that it's not going to happen. They're just not going to strike twice in this neighborhood. Well, Jack, I'm under the impression that you, and it sounds like you are, that you specialize in luxury homes. Have you specialized in luxury homes your entire career? No, and I wish I could say that it was a concerted,
1: well-thought-out, carefully crafted plan that it executed flawlessly, but it was 100% by accident. How did that come about? Well, here's the story. You know, go back in time to 1974, when I'm 21 years old, looked like I was about 15, had long hair, I was a goofy kid. People would remember me as a kid, and the, the common refrain would be, Are you serious? I'm going to list my house for that kid? Are you out of your mind? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. And so back in, understand again, back in 1974, we had the alphabet. You know, we had um, cars. We had the alphabet. We had the letters A through Z contained within those letters A through Z. We had the letters C, M, and A. It's just they the had never had them put together into a C, M, A. Nobody did a C, M, A. What happened back then was you'd call an agent. They would walk into your house, and so they would say, they would look around. There's hands are in their pocket. They would look around and say, yeah, you should put the house on for you know, $100,000. it will sell for ninety. And that was what you did. And um, these people had gray hair. They had track records. They had years of experience. And so they had credibility. They had standing. So people believed what they said. So when I would walk in, how could I compete with that, being a long-haired, goofy kid who looked like he was 15 years old? So I had to become more credible. I had become seen as an expert. So I had to get some expertise. So what I did was I took appraisal – Classes back then, you didn't have to be licensed or certified to do an appraisal, but I took appraisal classes. So rather than shooting a number off the top of my head when somebody would say, "What's my house going to sell for? What should I price it at?" I would actually say, "I'll get back to you." When I have enough confidence to sign my name next to my recommendation, I'll give it to you in writing. So I'd go back and do a forty-page narrative appraisal on to this, my part of my listing presentation, and people appreciated that work and that carried a lot of weight. And that was my equalizer to bridge the gap between my lack of experience and track records compared to the ones who I was competing with who had track records and experience. And so people liked that work. understand a lot of people in the high end uh, work with attorneys and other gatekeepers and they would see my work and they would want my valuation expertise for not necessarily for a sale, but for estate planning or for for contesting potentially contesting property tax assessment. So I find myself doing more and more of these valuations and pretty soon the more I did those, the more the more I crept up into the higher end because that's what people on the high end want. They want expertise. They want you know detail. They want to know, you know, they may not read everything that you did in all forty pages. They might just look at the one page summary at the beginning. But they want to know that a lot of work, care and um expertise has expended in coming up with the price of their precious asset here in Cape Cod. So that's a price range increase over that. I had people say, how do you break in? Well, one day I found my maverick and the maverick is every, every market has a maverick and every high end market has a maverick. And that's the person who has a lot of money. They're they qualify as a high net worth individual, but they don't follow the herd. My Maverick was a widow who was her husband was an attorney, passed away, partnered in a big law firm, tons of money, beautiful waterfront property. But the widow was tired of being bossed around by men. She was tired of being told to do by men. She was tired of being, you're having everything second guessed by men. And so when they told her who to list her house with, she said, let me look around first. And she found this goofy kid with long hair and no track record, no experience who came in and did a 40 page, market analysis on her property. And she liked that. And she liked the fact that I talked to her, you know, not in a condescending fashion. And I got the listening. She was my magic. She was willing to take a chance on that new person. And that's what you have to find to break into election market. Find that person who, you know, gets into a different drummer and does what he told us to do is really to take a chance for that new person. And she did. And then, one widow led to another widow, to another widow, to another widow. And, you know, I never really knew my grandparents when I was growing up. So I treated them all as if they were my grandmother. And I was very protective and gave them super service, took great care of them. And that's what built my business, and that's what got me higher and higher in price range. So it's the widow approach. And again, I cannot say that was a carefully planted, executed Strategy, but that's just the way it worked out. And quite frankly, even my biggest, my biggest sale ever, a little over 19 million. Same thing; she was a widow, and I'd made my connection with her by doing valuations for her over the years for tax planning purposes, or estate planning purposes, and for tax assessing purposes. And then when it was time to sell the house, I got the listing because I built that relationship by becoming her trusted real estate advisor. So they don't want to list with an agent. They don't want to list with a realtor. They want to list with who they seem to be their trusted real estate advisor.
0: And that's what I worked to become. Were you offering these CMAs for free? Oh, absolutely. And we didn't call them CMAs. I think we called them opinion to
1: value. We I didn't I don't even know what we called them back then. But no one had coined the word CMA back in the, in the 1970s that I knew of. So I was basically doing a narrative appraisal floor plans, you know, And don't forget, there was no
0: word processors or computers back then either. Everything was hand-typed. It was a lot of work. How long would it take you to do one of those? Hours.
1: Hours. And it, I was so poor that the only typewriter I could afford was this old mechanical Remington typewriter that typed in script, because it was cheaper than a typewriter that typed in a regular print. So I, everything I typed was in script, which, which looked so stupid. But anyway, my information was good. You know, back we used carbon paper. You couldn't even make a photocopy back then. So you know, and you're, you're taking pictures. You go to the drugstore, and you're waiting four days for the pictures to come back.
0: Then you are scotch taping into the pages. I mean, you you spent a lot of time on stuff back then. But that's what created the value. You poured yourself into these these uh, these mini appraisals, well, full blown appraisals, and your competition wasn't doing that. You were offering it free to the homeowner rather than... Because why wouldn't they just go out and pick an appraiser to do the same thing? Why did they trust you over an appraiser? Was it just the the cost? Because on a listing appointment, they didn't know I was going to do that. They would just... That's what
1: they would get. When they asked you to do an evaluation, No, you know, to give me... What, what do you think my house should sell for? I would give them a 40-page narrative. Now, that grew into people needing these valuations for estate planning and assessment, you know, fighting their assessments. And once in a while I would charge for them, but mostly I didn't charge. It was building goodwill, building that business, and equaling the playing field between myself and the more experienced practitioners in my market.
0: Very smart. So you mentioned that you had your first break with the Maverick. And how... Long were you in the business before you got that break into the luxury side uh, with the the Maverick Widow? It's so funny because the other day I was showing a house,
1: and it dawned on me that this property was my first waterfront sale, which is the one we're talking about now. It's on the market for six million right now. Back then, I think it was, I think it was two hundred thousand dollars, and I'm gonna guess it was like. 1977 or something like that. But yeah, it was, it was around $200,000, which was, you know, you figure out the commission, take 6% of 200,000, it's 12,000, I own my own company. So so 12,000, well back then, the Harvard MBA was making 15,000 in a year. And I just made that on one sale. So it was huge money back then. And back then, nothing to spend the money on. I mean, your phone bill was higher, advertising was not cheap. But there, was no, there were no computers, there were no cell phones, there were no pages, there was no technology. So basically, in those days, I could sell when I got rolling and when I really started to take off, like in the late 70s, early 80s, I could sell 12, 15, maybe 18 houses a year, average sales rates of a million dollars, average commission of 6%. You could easily push close to a figure income, but you had no expenses.
0: I mean you nothing to spend the money on. I bet you could buy a typewriter. Well, I remember my first typewriter, my first real <laughs> typewriter was the IBM
1: Selectric II typewriter, and I was sitting in the Burger King parking lot at Exit Six on the Mid Cape Highway with the IBM sales and sitting in my car during a trench or rainstorm, signed the paperwork for an IBM Selectric Two with an extended range carriage for one thousand fifty bucks. Which was a ton of money for a, a typewriter back then, but it had this incredible high tech feature called lift off tape. So rather than doing white out or strikeovers when you made a typo, it would mm-hmm. lift them, it would mm-hmm. lift the type right off the page. So you know back then I was doing a, i would type a hundred letters every night. or would hand type a hundred like farm letters every single evening at home and they looked so much better on the selector two than they did on my Remington especially when I made a boo-boo because you could just lift it off. That was like a breakthrough for me was the IBM Selectric 2 typewriter because the keyboard was like,
0: there's still nothing like an IBM keyboard even to this day. And that lift-off tape was nothing short of miraculous. For the folks listening to us now who are considering getting into the luxury market, let's first define it. How would you define the, the luxury market for homes? Well, my definition, no matter where you are in the country, because in, you know, in my market, it might be a million and above, in the Hamptons, it might
1: be four million and above, and Beverly Hills might be six million and above, but the, the common thread, the common way to describe the luxury market is the top 10% of your market. So you know, print out all the homes that sold in your market from top to bottom, calculate the top 10%, and where that number falls, that's how I would define luxury. It has been pretty consistent here, We've been calling it a million because we round that number off. So maybe one year it might be 790, another year it might be 910, another year it might be a million one. But right around the million dollar mark in my market, that's sort of what we've always used for our definition. Again, if you go to other markets like Manhattan, yeah, you're probably talking
0: five or six million dollars and up, but top 10%. So if you look to your current business, you said you're selling the whole gambit. What percentage of your business is on the luxury end? What percentage of the homes are you selling are in that top
1: 10%? Well, basically, because of the way the market is here, I'm going to say probably 90%. I owned my company all this whole time. I sold my company in 2005. But the whole time I owned my company, my philosophy was that when you're selling a real super property, like five or $10 million, I mean, how often can that really happen for me, has happened enough, but I always pretended like this is the last one I'm ever going to sell. So what I try to do from a business standpoint and from a wealth building standpoint is to survive and pay my bills on regular real estate and pretend the big ones never happened and bank them. So that's what I would do. So every time I had a big sale, I pretended it never happened. You know, once in a while I might buy some kind of a toy or something, but for the most part I would just bank the money. So, When I consider that I've been in this business now for four decades and I've had almost no capital gains, but a lot of people make money in real estate by buying low and selling high. I'm famous for buying high and selling low. So all my net worth, which is basically the only number I track, the only number I really pay attention to, has come from selling real estate, not from capital gains, not from flipping houses, not from... You know, plenty of times, somebody will call me up and say, I want a million bucks. I want you to sell my house for a million dollars. And a lot of Asians say, great, and then buy the house, and then they'd flip it for two. I would just say, no, your house is worth a lot more than a million dollars. Let's see what it's really worth and sell it for that. So my net worth, which is okay for somebody who started with zero, is all from selling houses, not from capital gains.
0: You said that you take the money from these large sales and you bank it. When you say you bank it, does that mean you, you actually put it in a savings account? Or are you putting it into a, a stock market or mutual fund? Or are you putting it back into real estate? Where are you banking that money?
1: All of the above. All of the above. I've been through three major downturns in my career. So I like to keep seven figures in cash at all times just because it makes you feel good. I keep several thousand dollars just in my pocket all the time because I'm old school, but I like to keep, you know, seven figures of cash at all times. And I ha- I have lots of real estate. I don't owe a dime in any of my real estate. It's all paid off. And I have stock market investments also. I mean, my philosophy has been, I've never dealt with insider information, but when a person comes into my market and they have the confidence to invest six or $7 million dollars into a home they're going to use for four weeks out of the year, and they're the CFO or the CIO or the CEO of a publicly traded company, I buy that stock. Because if they have the confidence confidence to make that investment in a second home, they're really believing in their company and their own net worth, their own ability. So if they believe in it, I'm believing in it. And that's actually been my best investment. Well, I hate the stock market, even though I'm in it. But... You know, again, if somebody comes and buys a house from me who works for a publicly traded company, I typically research the company and then I'll buy stock on the company. So I have cash, stock, and real estate. Real estate is the best investment on the planet, though. I firmly believe that real estate is the absolute best investment on the planet. Real estate, my real estate, has gotten me through every single downturn. If it was not for my real estate, I would have been crushed In 1986 through 1991, we had that big downturn. I would have been crushed in 2007 and 2008 if I didn't have my real estate. But because I own all this great real estate debt free, I can cut my rents in half, which basically I had to do more than once. I can slash my rents to keep them full. I have no bank to answer to. And maybe I'm not getting as much income as I was getting before, but I'm still getting good income and it can
0: supplement the when the real estate selling business is not doing so well. About the the type of real estate that you own, are you purchasing residential properties, single-family homes, multiple units, commercial property? What kind of property are you investing in? I used to do single-family homes. I
1: had to sell off most of them in that 1986-1991 time frame. But right now, I'm almost all commercial Almost all commercial, maybe three or four houses, but all commercial. There's not a ton of it, but it's worth a lot of money because property is expensive here. So, what you might be able to buy one market for 200 if you have to pay millions more a year.
0: Did you purchase those properties with cash or did you leverage Did you finance them? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I had mortgages on everything. In fact, when we had that last
1: downturn and the one before this one, right before ninety one I think is when it culminated. My mortgages were down to thirty two percent of value. I was always making double and triple payments anytime I could when times were good. But the music stopped before things were totally paid off. and I had to sell I forget twelve or eighteen houses that I owned around. I decided to sell them all and I lost my shirt on them. But I never had a late payment. I never had a foreclosure. I've never I don't have one blemish on my credit because all the money I lost was mine, because I always had to have down payments. I mean, I bought my dream house when I was 35 years old. Let's see, it came on the market for $400,000. I went there. I could not afford it, so someone else bought it. He put it on the market a year later for $600,000 in November of, whatever the year it was, 1980-something. I went there. I couldn't afford it. Nobody else bought it, so he took it off the market. In March of the following year, I knocked on his door, and I said, I have to have this house. I want to pay a million one 000, 000 for it. And my mortgage was around, it was under three hundred. Might have been like two fifty say. So I was able to put, you know, eight hundred fifty thousand dollars down payment on this house. But then when things got really bad, I made it for a million one. 000, 000, I wound up selling it for seven hundred. So I sold it for a pretty big loss. But obviously the advantage of the bank is I only owed them two fifty five or something like that. So now. Through the miracle of compound interest and time having passed and just being tired of having mortgages, I don't, everything I own now is free and clear. These days I will say though, that I always tell my wife this when I'm paying bills, <laughs> that taxes and insurance are almost like a mortgage statement now. I remember when my house insurance was less on my car insurance. Now I did you know, my house, you get a bill for 18,000 bucks for house insurance. It's like,
0: It's a good thing I don't have a mortgage. When you buy your investment properties over the years, have you always put down a large down payment? You said you did on your personal residence. Did you do that on your investment property as well? And how large? What's your goal or objective there? Well, it was different goals with how much money I had at the time. I've always felt it over the years. I work better.
1: I work better more effectively when I have less cash around because I'd always blow it on something like a new bike or a new car or something or a new boat. So I would, you know, just, whatever, just buy whatever I could buy. Real estate wise, but a minimum, I mean, when I was buying houses, I was probably putting 20% down. Whereas by commercial, I was probably putting 30 to 35% down. But I learned from the old people, my early mentors, when I was in the business, starting out and thinking about quitting, because I hadn't sold the house for over a year, as I told you before, I would go and visit the old people and talk to them and, there was something about their stories of a depression that really went home with me. And so I've, I have made a decision to have less real estate and own it. So rather than, like a lot of people, a lot of my contemporaries would, rather than paying down their property, to buy more property with leverage. Well, then when the music stopped, it, the whole thing fell down like a house of cards. Where So I've always had less real estate than a lot of other people, but I'd have
0: they're thirty percent down, or fifty percent down, or one hundred percent down, so it can absorb a uh, change in the market. Well, yeah, like I've got, I've got one building where maybe I get five thousand a month in rent. Well, in the good old days, I was getting
1: seventy five hundred dollars a month in the rent, and we're not back. My rents are not back to the good old days, but still, five thousand coming in is better than nothing coming in. And if I had a big mortgage on that building, and five thousand was covering the mortgage, that wouldn't be that great. So it's just better when you're starting out, you have to get a mortgage. I'm not saying don't get a mortgage, but my advice to people who want to invest in real estate, maybe it's contrarian, but put as much time as you can and get the shortest mortgage you can and pay it off as quickly as you can. A house, a piece of real estate is not an ATM. You know, the only reason I would refinance a piece of real estate, and quite frankly, I've been thinking about getting a mortgage, even though I haven't had them for years, because rates are so low. I see people now getting 2% mortgages, you know, fixed for five or 10 years, interest only. Sometimes you think you're stupid not to get one. I just can't bring myself to do it. But yeah, it's a great time to, if you're just starting out, yeah, get a mortgage now, get a mortgage now, but just pay it off, pay it off. Because when you get to be my age, it's just nice to have that
0: money coming in and not going out to the bank. Jack, thank you for walking down that with us on the investment side. Let's go back to the, the luxury side. When you're working with a luxury client, is there a difference between working with a luxury client and working with a, a regular priced home client? Well, there is. There's, there's a couple of differences. Number one, they're, they've done it before. They're more
1: sophisticated. They understand there's maybe sometimes a little bit less emotion with them. They oftentimes fall all over the deal, as opposed to falling in love over the house. They're more disciplined in their approach. They oftentimes don't overinvest. They 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 buy with or invest within their means rather than you know going beyond their means. They want to deal with an expert. They appreciate and are willing to pay for expertise to help guide their decision. They take advice from everyone. They, they crave information. They crave information, and they'll get it from anyone. They may not act on all of it. For example, if they're out to lunch, they'll ask the server their opinion on real estate in a given market. If they're talking to their landscaper, They'll ask for the landscapers' opinion. They will ask everyone for advice. They never look down their nose at anyone when they could be possibly gathering intelligence or information. They may not act on it or accept it or use it, but they're sponges. They cannot have enough information. And they'll put that all together, and then they'll make informed decisions. As a result, they tend not to be as much swayed by emotion. Our job as real estate agents... We're trying to have people connect with the emotion of the purchase so they'll buy this property that maybe it makes no sense to invest you know, eight million billion for home you going to use four weeks a year, but um, our job is to, to try to paint that emotional picture that they want to see themselves moving into and become a part of so they'll do it, and that's the challenge of the high end because you're talking about building family memories, and they're coming back to you as data points. <laughs> you know, so. You're, you're always crossing that line of trying to bring emotion, but also catering to their to their, their their thirst for information and data.
0: It sounds like the luxury home purchases and sales are a lot more analytical, a lot more data-driven. Does that mean they're taking longer to make decisions? Well, partly. But understand, when you're in the second home market, it's a discretionary market,
1: so. Sometimes, you know, when the stars are lined up and the wind's out of the southwest and the planets are in whatever and the moon's in retrograde and I had a good morning this morning, maybe I'll buy a house. So no one's really under the gun to buy these things. On the other hand, sometimes it can be impulsive. We find a lot of people come here and they'll rent a property for, you know, four weeks. And typically when they're strapping stuff on the roof of their car to go home, that's they'll decide to buy something. They'll buy something at the very end of their vacation, or they'll come back in the autumn after the summer season's over, having been bitten by the bug during the summertime. But sometimes you're impulsive. Like, for example, sellers are very impulsive. A seller may be their home here in my market and have no thought of selling their house. And tonight's Friday night. You'll go to someone else's house for cocktails. You'll see the view from that house. And tomorrow morning, their house is coming on the market. So the decision to buy or sell sometimes is impulsive, but oftentimes it's very
0: carefully considered, and there's no rush whatsoever. So it can be either one. Do you find yourself working more with the buyers or the sellers? I'm probably 90% sellers. 90% sellers.
1: And why do you think that is? Well, I love sellers. I love listing, I love getting listings, I love sellers. I love the leverage. that we just talked about how when you're investing in real estate, you gotta keep leverage under control. But as a real estate agent, leverage is a miracle because every time you list a house, in my market there's a thousand agents on the MLS, every time I list a house, I'm sitting here talking to you on the phone here, there's potentially a thousand agents contacting buyers about my listing. Now if I was only working with buyers, The buyers have to be sitting in the car or maybe out somewhere else while I'm talking to you on the phone, I'm going to lose them. So I can't be doing anything with a buyer right now that I'm talking to you, but a thousand agents could be submitting my listings to any number of
0: buyers they have, even during our conversation right now. So to me, it's the ultimate leverage in real estate. You've definitely focused on the listing side of the business. Talk to us about how you're generating that business. How are you finding these luxury clients?
1: I'll confide in you that I've been around for so long now that a lot of them find me. So I do work my right share, my past customers and clients, probably not as well as I should, but most
0: of my business comes from repeat and referral business at this stage of the game. And we'll go into that in just a second. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Before we do, the agents listening that want to get into the luxury market, do you have recommendations for how they could break in if they don't have that past client or sphere of influence database yet?
1: Well, there's two things. One, they could read one of my books, but it's kind of self-serving, but you have to provide what they want. People behind end want to deal with experts. So if you decide you want to break into luxury real estate, you need to become an expert. That's number one, become an expert. But that's not good enough because once you become an expert, you run the risk of being all dressed up with no place to go. So you get the expertise, then people have to perceive that you have expertise and want the expertise. So the easiest place to become an expert is in market and value in your actual location. So what I tell people, if you want to break into the luxury market of Podunk USA, I would go into the Podunk Assessor's Office and I would get the Assessor's Maps that shows every single property in that market And I would do a two-year research project on every single property in that market. I would look at who are the prominent builders, what are things selling for per square foot, per foot, per acre, whatever, who's buying, where are they coming from. I know in my case, the buyers tend to be within the, the western suburbs of Boston. They tend to come from the financial services industry. You need to just become an expert in that market and really understand pricing and value, establish benchmarks for that market. What are things selling for per square foot? In my market, I like to calculate what are things selling for as a percentage of their property tax assessment. Are things here selling for 97% of assessment or 112% of assessment? So once you have that expertise in the market, now you can bring it down to a granular level. How does this particular house fit into that expertise? Now I can go to gatekeepers. Who are the gatekeepers in that luxury market? that you want to break into who are the CPAs? Who are the attorneys who are specialized in trusted estates? Who are the trust officers at banks? Now you can market that expertise to them because one thing they need every single year is an updated CNA on their client's property. They really don't want to spend the money on an appraisal. They may be loaded with lots of money, but they're very careful how they spend it, trust me. So you can be in a position to give these people updated market information For their clients every year, now you're in good places with the gatekeepers. And when one of their clients wants to sell their property, you're the person they're going to call. So that's a long-term approach. The short-term approach is going after luxury expires. So a lot of people, until they really research this, are surprised to hear me say that luxury listings do expire. But yes, they absolutely do because a lot of people get into luxury real estate thinking that they just have to show up and the, the business falls into their lap because of their, their family lineage or their last name or their connections. And it's just not the case. So you can find a lot of expired listings in the high end. Make a plan for going after expireds. So the way to do that is, again, to use that expertise and to bring value to the expired seller. And I have people send me expired letters all the time so I can see what they're sending people. and it, They don't bring value. My suggestion is you should go to these wealthy expired sellers and say, Listen, in my blank months, years, whatever in business, I've learned if there are four factors that cause a property to sell and not sell. If I could have 10 to 15 minutes in your property, I can tell you which one of those factors is the reason your property didn't sell. When would you like me to come by? Today at three or tomorrow at four? Now you've raised your question in their mind four factors, what are they? Probably what happens to is price. Probably going to hit me with the price. So. I never mentioned price as one of my four factors. first. It is one of the factors, but it's a fourth factor. The first one is terms. second one is condition, third one is marketing, and the fourth one is price. So some people talk about three things, which is condition, marketing and price. I like to mention terms because terms have been historically great for about 10 years now. So terms are the ability, the availability, and the pricing of financing in your market. So right now, mortgage rates are still between 2 and 4%. That's historic. So if your property expired in a market where the terms of 2 to 4% and money's plentiful, it must mean something's really wrong with one or more of the other three. So to me, that just sets the whole tone for the discussion with the seller talking about terms first. So then just go right down the list. Is it the... Condition is it the marketing, or 99.9 times out of 100 it's the price. But if you go to price first, it doesn't work as well as when you go the other. You take the other order I just mentioned.
0: You mentioned initially for breaking into luxury to to become an expert in the market to do a lot of research. And I'm under the impression that you did that at a a pretty high level. I heard a, a story a while back from David Knox. And he mentioned that you took your boat out into the the canal there, the ocean, and you went around the island, and you took photographs of all of the waterfront homes, just in anticipation of possibly getting one of those listings in the future. Is that true? Yeah. What I do is, obviously, we're the waterfront
1: market, so every summer I shoot part of the market. So I have a photo inventory of every waterfront property. Now, they may not be the best pictures in the world, but a lot of times homes come on the market now, like November, December, January, February, when everything's icy and snowy and looking dreary. But I have a database of photographs of every single listing in my marketplace, and I upgrade them every summer. So I mean, I don't do the entire market every summer because like, well, one stretch of property, one stretch of real estate here looks best, when shot in the morning on a sunny day before eleven o'clock in the morning, so if I take my boat and run down the coast slowly and stand up on the roof and shoot those homes, now just shot that whole market. Another another part of my market looks better shot between three and four in the afternoon when the sun is more to the west, shooting back the other way. So basically. Yeah, every year, I'll be shooting a portion of my market, so I never have pictures that are more than two years old of every single
0: property in my market. That is dedication.
1: Well, David Dox probably forgot to mention that I also write off my boat, and that's an important part of that exercise.
0: How do you get a still picture with the ocean moving, standing on your boat? Well, again, you have to pick your days. and and You don't really know my market
1: geographically, but a lot of my waterway is inland water. They're, they're very protected bays. So you can get great pictures. Now the picture that face on the ocean on Nantucket Sound, as it turns out, those properties all face south. The best time to shoot them is probably in the morning to get the morning sun and the wind really here doesn't pick up until after time. So when you're shooting in full sunlight in the summertime, in the sun high in the sky you can shoot very fast pictures. You can have a very fast shutter speed so you don't you don't pick up motions. Again, if I'm shooting your house for listing purposes, that what you just said is a problem because I'm focusing on one house, yeah, it it is a problem. But when you're just shooting like twenty five homes or thirty homes on one stretch of road facing
0: south, you're just you're shooting right down the coast and bing bang boom, whacking those you know, just get those pictures nailed. The reason that you're doing that is to impress the seller when you do get called in on a listing appointment on one of those properties, and you're able to bring up one of the photographs that you did during the summer months, even before you knew they were going to sell the home. Isn't that true? Exactly. That's the whole point. Yeah. And it's going to be my cover shot, which I, I'll have a really great cover shot for that listing,
1: even if they're calling me in January.
0: And so the next step is, how could someone out there listening apply that to their market? Let's say they're not on the water, but they want to move into luxury. Let's see, maybe they could drive around luxury subdivisions, take pictures from the street, or maybe an aerial photograph. What do you recommend? Well, first of all, it's hard to do from the street in a lot of luxury markets because
1: the homes are so far back to the road. So unless you can drive to anybody's driveway, it's going to be a hard thing to do. And aerial photographs, I don't like at all because there's too much roof. Drone photos you could do, but now you can't do that anymore. So basically, waterfront really lends itself to this exercise because typically there's no obstruction between the house and the water because the owner is trying to maximize the view of the water. But these homes I shoot from the water, if I tried to shoot them from the street, I would get nothing. There's nothing to see from the street. So that's probably something that's hard to do if you're not in the waterfront market. I would say the only other markets you could do that would be a golf course market where if you could go on a golf course on a cart and shoot the house from the fairway or slope-side properties where you can shoot from the slope-side when you're skiing or waterfront property where you can shoot from a boat. But if you're driving around in your car, unless they're really small lots close to
0: the road, it's
1: going to be a tough thing to
0: do. And the impressive part of this story is the detail, the length that you will go to to get an advantage over your competition by showing the seller how much research you're willing to do. It really goes back to where you started typing out these reports with this uh, uh, less than perfect typewriter, taping in those those photographs three or four days later. Uh, you're still doing the same thing. Yes. Yeah, but now we just have word processors but. It still takes me hours to do a CNA because
1: we do. Uh, we had a meeting up here yesterday. I had a bunch of Asians come in. We were brainstorming checklists. And they were astounded at what I do before I even show up for a listing appointment. Like how many things we do before I even show up to your house to talk about listing your house with no guarantee that I'm going to get the to listing. People are astounded at how much I do. But, you know, I grew up with a single mom. I grew up with a single mom and two sisters. And in those days, you know, women didn't get paid the same as men. My mother, for a period of time, worked at a bank as a bank teller, and she worked the same hours, did the same job as a guy at the next window at the bank. And she got 20% more money than she did, and we would talk about that and the unfairness of it, but I was very much aware of that. So what my mom had to do was to, to move up and do, to make more money, but she had to work much harder and do a better job. So that was drilled into me at an early age, sort of subconsciously. So I compare, now obviously I'm a guy and everything, but I was a, a, a 21-year-old guy who looked like a 15-year-old guy. I had to outwork and outdo everybody. else to equal the playing field between myself and the more experienced practitioners. And I think that some members of our society have disadvantages based on certain things. And... I think women in real estate will tell you that they probably do do more. They work harder. They have to do more and work harder. But honestly, if you want to succeed in business, that's a great lesson and a great discipline to have. And maybe that's why, as a rule, women do better in real estate or there's more successful women in real estate than there are men is because they just innately understand that they've got to do more to get to the same place, and they do. I, I probably shouldn't be saying all this, but I think that's a fact. And, you know, people tell me, I have people tell me, like I have this guy who bought one of my books and he's um, an African-American guy and um, up in, I won't even, I'm not going to say too much, but he's in some town as far north of New England as you can get. And they said, you must be the only African-American guy in this whole town and you're, you're trying to break into luxury real estate. Well, you're just going to have to work 10 times harder than everybody else, but it's totally doable because let me tell you something about high net worth individuals. They don't care what color you are. They don't care what gender you are. They don't care about anything except what results are you going to get from me? So quite frankly, I think as a minority person, you probably have a better chance of succeeding in luxury real estate than you might in any other real estate because people in the high end what results. They don't care about that other stuff. We kind of think they do, but they really don't. In fact, I know when I was starting out in business, back when I was knocking on doors, the only time I got a door slammed in my face, the only time I was treated rudely at the front door of somebody's home that I knocked in was when I knocked on doors in my own neighborhood. <laughs> when, I was sister, when I knocked on doors in the wealthy neighborhoods, they were they were nice to me. They were happy to talk to me. They saw a little bit of them starting out in me. I learned from them. So this whole notion that people in the high end, oh, I can't talk to them. He's rich and they're going to hate me and they're going to be mean to me. And I'm not rich and they're not going to want to talk to me. Or I'm this and they're not going to want to talk to me. Or I'm that. And they're not going to want to talk to me. is absolutely, positively untrue. People on the high end focus on results first. They don't care anything
0: about you. Take care. what can you do for me, and how are you going to do it? You mentioned something about the list that you use to prepare for a listing appointment and how many items there are on there. Could you give us a, a couple of those things that you do to prepare for a listing appointment? Well, first of all, the first thing I do is deliver a pre-listing presentation
1: because my belief is that no matter what price range you're in, People really don't know what's going to happen or what to expect. My belief is that when you teach people what they should expect, you have less trouble in life because most trouble in life comes from not meeting expectations. So the goal is to teach people what the expectations should be and then exceed them. If you're about putting your house on the market, you will call three agents or four agents, whatever the case may be. You really don't know what's going to happen next. You just you have a perception of what's going to happen next, which is that they're going to show up at your house, they're going to look around, they're probably going to shoot a number off the top of their head that might give you something inviting. You really don't know. So, my process is to deliver, have delivered, a pre presentation to your door. And what that pre presentation does is number one, tells them what to expect on the first appointment. And what it tells them to expect is that Jack is going to show up having done the following items even before he shows up at your house. So my pre-listing checklist is actually in my pre-listing presentation. But basically, I'm going to go to the registry of deeds online now. I don't have to go in person anymore. I'm going to get your deeds. I'm going to get all your, your plot plans, your land plans, your subdivision plans. I'm going to look for restrictions. I'm going to look for first aid refusal. I'm going to go to the Board of Health. I'm going to pull your septic records. I'm going to go to the town assessment's office and pull your assessment field card, your assessment plan, pull a flood map look up everything I can about your property. I'm going to do all this research even before I even show up at your house. How would they know I'm going to do that if I don't tell them? Half the time the sellers don't even know this stuff exists. So that, those are all items I just rattled off from my pre-listing checklist. And I put it in my pre-listing presentation so the sellers know that when I show up, I've already done this stuff. Otherwise, how are they going to know? How often do most sellers sell every five to seven years? I mean, you get the occasional seller who moves every 18 months. I deal with older people who have bought and sold 20 homes in their lifetimes. But even then, it was done a long time ago. They don't really know what an agent does before they show up. They just assume you show up. They watch those reality shows on TV. I love watching, like Million Dollar Listing and all that stuff. Look what those guys do. They show up. They show up with their hands in their pockets. They show up empty-handed with their hands in their pockets. They walk around. They look around. They say... Yeah, you should put your house on the market for $4 bucks, And I'll have to pay for some of them later on. See you later. Thanks. Bye. That was great. That is not. So that's what sellers think now is going to happen. My job is to let the sellers know, listen, I have a very detailed process that I'm going to execute. It begins even before I show up at your house for my first appointment. Here are the eight or nine things I'm going to do even before I show up to meet with you to see your property. Then they turn the page and it tells them, here's what's going to happen when I come to your house. We're going to sit down. We're going to talk. I'm going to ask you some questions. Then you're going to show me your house. Just like I'm the buyer, you're going to walk me through. Then you're going to go back and sit down, and I'm going to go back through and look at your house again, and I'm going to have a laser measure in one hand and my dictaphone in the other hand, and I'm going to measure every inch of your house and dictate every detail in my dictaphone, which will be transcribed by the time I get back to my office because I can, I can upload it wirelessly from my phone while I'm still at your house, and the typers will have it done before I get back to my office. So once I have all that information, my very detailed dictated notes and measurements, I can now begin to prepare my marketing plan and pricing recommendation for you. Then they turn the page again, and it tells them what's going to happen after the first appointment, before the second appointment. And Then they turn the page again, and it tells them what's going to happen at the second appointment, including you will be signing the paperwork, authorizing me to go to work for you and selling your property. I don't use the word signing a listing agreement. I use the words you'll be signing the documentation authorized me to go to work on the sale of your property.
0: You are really diving in deep. How much time? How many hours do you think you have invested in one of these projects, one of these properties before you ever get the listing signed? Well, again, it's 2014 now, so a lot of what did you now can be done online. Whereas in the old days, it have to
1: drive eight miles to the finish deeds drive five miles to the town hall. Now you can do it all on the computer, but it still takes, you're looking at a couple hours of man hours or people hours to crank up this stuff and we can do it a lot more quickly and effectively than we used to be able to do it, but it still takes time. And people say to me, are you stupid? Why are you measuring and dictating a house on a first appointment when you don't know if you're going to get the listing? Because I want the information, I want to differentiate myself from my competition and understand that, this is, hard for me, this is hard for me to admit, but like there's a little bit of showmanship in here. When you're having three people come to your house and you're going to get three different marketing plans and three different pricing recommendations and you're probably going to like one of them, you're probably going to not be thrilled about one of them and you're going to hate the third one. But then that one you hate you could be like, gosh, it's lower than the other ones. But that guy did all this research before he got here. He measured every room. He dictated all these notes. He came here on the second appointment with four pages of typewritten notes with every detail of my property. He asked me all these questions. I don't really like that number, but look at what went into coming up with that number. He's got spreadsheets. He's got charts and graphs. He's got you know pictures and arrows and paragraphs in the back of each one explaining what each one is. I mean... It's all part of the process to separate me from the competition and to give myself more standing, so that I have an easier time selling them on the price that they may not like for the property. You know, pricing here is very challenging compared to a lot of markets. In fact, the higher you go in price, the more challenging it can be because these are not subdivisions; these are not homes all built by the same builder. I'm mean, going to show you properties I've sold for. I can think won $7.2 million. Well, across the street was a beat-up shack. We sold for $439,000. I mean, it's across the street, but it's not a great comp. So comping here, doing the price evaluations here, is like pricing the Mona Lisa. Okay, I've got a precious painting of some Mona Lisa. This lady's sitting here with a smirk. Well, what am I going to use for comps? Well, there are no comps for the Mona Lisa. And quite frankly, honestly, sellers love it when they compare their home to the Mona Lisa. So what I have to do is I have to find this other painting that maybe Rembrandt did not say Leonardo da Vinci. Rembrandt did this other one, and I can make some adjustments. So I can adjust for, you know, this artist is probably 20% less valuable than that artist. So I make adjustments to the comps to make them more like your house to overcome that objection of that comp is not like mine. But you you are like valuing a piece of art here when you're valuing these luxury properties. But again, having a process,
0: explaining the process, my checklists are actually part of my listening presentation. You're showing that you're the expert. You're, you're creating the perception of the reality that you're the expert. Right. Now, if only I could have been born rich and famous and
1: born and well-connected, or if I could be a scratch golfer, I wouldn't have to do any of this stuff. Because, <laughs> because people still in the high end, they will think, oh, it's time to sell our house. I'm $8 million house Well, I play golf with this guy and he's got a one handicap and he's in real estate, but he's a really cool guy and I like playing golf with him. I'll miss with him. But I probably should get a second opinion just in case. And I never made a past caddy, so I'm a terrible golfer, so I have to do all this other stuff to, to have any chance of succeeding
0: against the guy who's, a, who's got a one handicap in golf. It makes me nuts, but that's just the reality of the business. And that goes back to your statement before that the upper end is looking for results. And you're proving that whether they like you or not, or they have a personal connection with you or not from before, you're the guy or you're the person that can get results. Right. Yeah, because I'm actually not that likable. So, so i have got to get <laughs> results. <laughs> but something else you mentioned was, and I, I want to make sure I got this right. Do you do a two-step listing presentation? Do you go to the house twice? 25 And a half step. The half step is a pre listing package,
1: and then there's two appointments after that. I absolutely positively believe in a two step process. And even if I know what the price should be on the first step, my process calls for a two step. And once in a great while, when I'm tempted to take a shortcut into a one step instead of a two step, I always regret that decision later on. So, yeah, two step. I highly recommend two step. I don't care how well you know the market. I don't care if you're eleven time and every home is the same. It's part of the performance, it's part of the performance. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry to say this, but yes, it's partly performance art. Yeah, expertise is part of it, having a track cricket is part of it, but performance art is a big part of luxury. Case closed.
0: Well, because at this point in your career, after 40 years of working that market, you probably could walk in there like the old timers when you got in the business, assess the home fairly quickly, and have a pretty good idea of what the value of the home is. And you could spit that out empty-handed and, and have a, a pretty close idea, yet that's not going to prove why you've come up with that number and create your expertise in the mind's eye of that potential client. No. And what you just said, that short
1: abbreviated process does not meet the definition of luxury. Luxury has reverence attached. For example, let's say Louis Vuitton, how long have they been around, 300 years? I mean, does anyone really have a better reputation in luxury leather goods than Louis Vuitton? I mean, yeah, Gucci's up there too, and Hermes has some decent bags, and Bally does too, but Louis Vuitton is an icon in beautiful handcrafted leather bags. So because of their reputation, three centuries in the making. You should be able to walk into a Louis Vuitton store and they should toss a bag under the counter. And you should be thrilled to fork over 2000 bucks to buy it. But even with their great name, with their great branding, with their 300-year track record and history in the business, that's not what happens. When you walk into a Louis Vuitton store, they combine showmanship with salesmanship. You want to buy a bag? They say, great. That bag you selected is a beautiful bag. Let me show it to you. They put a piece of velvet on the counter. They open up a drawer. They reach into the drawer. They put on white cotton gloves on their hands. They walk over to the bag. They grab the bag with two hands. Not one, two hands. They lay the bag on the black velvet in front of you with two hands. And they open it. They bring reverence. They are creating more value in that leather bag that probably cost them 100 bucks to make. They're going to sell you for 2000 or whatever. It's part of the process. They were showmanship combined with the salesmanship. Quite frankly, I've never used them, but I have white cotton gloves in my briefcase. And one of these days, when I pull my listing presentation up, I'm going to put on the white cotton gloves and pick up my listing presentation, my CNA, and I'm going to put a piece of black velvet on the table in front of them and lay my listing presentation down in front of them. And while I don't do those things exactly, metaphorically, I do. My process for everything that I do from the measuring, from the dictating to the pre-listing presentation to the reverence I bring to my whole listing presentation process is the equivalent of Louis Vuitton having white cotton-clad hands laying a leather bag with two hands on a piece of black velvet in front of you. It's the reverence they have for their product. And that is
0: the reverence I treat my listing appointments with, my sellers with, and their properties with. Jack, you've mentioned that at this time, the majority of your business is coming from past clients and sphere of influence. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? It's pretty big. It's probably a couple thousand. I try to keep it, I really try to keep what
1: I call my actual sphere of influence, I try to keep to around 250. But I mean, I have a big big database. But the real core... I try to call and keep around 250. Now, I hear a lot of Asians have like, you know, 10,000, 5,000, 20,000. I don't really think you need
0: that many people. I think a good number for me for a lot of, I think a good number is 250. The 250, you said sphere of influence. Is that just your connections, your network, or does that also include your past clients? Both, yes. The ones I think are in a position to send me business. This is going to sound awful.
1: But honestly, goodness, a lot of my past customers are deceased. I mean, it's just just the way it is here. I mean, even if they're alive when I sell the property, typically they're not alive that much longer afterwards. I mean, that's the way it is. It's an older market here. So it's sad. And so a lot of my sellers are the second or third generation of sellers who don't need to live around here. So I can build up a big database of thousands of people but it really wouldn't be that relevant. So the relevant number is around 250.
0: Who is in that 250? How does someone make it into that 250? You said they're, they're the type of people who would refer you business. How did you make that decision? Well, by asking that question, is this the type of person who can refer me business? So it's a gut reaction based on your relationship with them. Yeah. I do a mental exercise, which I've turned into a spreadsheet, which is very cold and calculating spreadsheet, but I have this spreadsheet
1: that I call a, a SEER certificate. And what I do is I made it in Excel, and I have this designer who can make them look pretty. So I made it look pretty. So I'll put your name on there, and I'll put in, um, what's the average sales page of a home you're likely to buy yourself? You know, say 500,000 or a million bucks, whatever it can be. How many times are you going to buy yourself with over the next 10 years? I'll write down a number, one or two. But I'll say, how many... Clients you're likely to refer to me in a given year, per year, I might say, well, Mike is probably good for two a year, or one a year, or three a year, but let's call it two a year. And these are all, it needs to all get entered into my spreadsheet, and then what's the likely transactions I of a deal you're likely to refer to me in those one or two instances per year, and I'll say a million bucks again. So I enter all that in the spreadsheet, it it automatically calculates, it automatically calculates. How much income I likely can earn over a 10 year period and per year from you. So I tell agents, you know, fill a few of these out. You don't need to fill out 250 of them, but if you fill out four or five of them, suddenly a the light's going to go off and you're going to say, holy macro, there's a lot of value in my sphere of influence because this one person is worth 60 grand a year to me, 600,000 over 10 years. Let's fill out a few more to see what happens. So now you begin to understand that there's real value in that sphere, and you need to cultivate it. The other cool thing about this exercise is that if you get to be really old, obviously realtors don't retire, they expire, but if you get really old, and you want to get out of the business, and have somebody else take it over, if you could ever imagine yourself not doing this, if you have a lot of these fears certificates filled up, if you can demonstrate a certain amount of business coming from your sphere, You can now sell your business. I mean, I sold
0: my business in 2005. Who did you sell it to? Some of these. How did that sell go about? Did they look at some type of track record for income and then use a multiple of the net or the gross? How did you value that business? Yes. Now I'm just an agent with them. I built my my company. It was a huge, huge,
1: but we were probably doing, you know, I probably had 25 people with me. We worked as a team. You know, Probably doing $250 million, maybe 5 or $6 million in commission and making huge, I mean great profit, maybe 20%. Some of these wanted to come into this market and they bought my company. So now I just work for them as an agent.
0: Why did you decide to sell? Was it just an offer you couldn't refuse? It was a great multiple. Why didn't you just keep the company and continue to do what you were doing?
1: I love that company. It was a hard decision to sell my company because I love my company. I still do. At the same time, I could see storm clouds on the horizon in 2005. I really didn't want to go through another downturn by myself. If I was ever going to sell, I couldn't imagine selling to a better company than Sotheby's. I love Sotheby's. I still do. That was nine years ago. You know, it was just, to me, who else would I sell to? And I couldn't guarantee that if I didn't do it then, it didn't want me the next year or the next five years, you know? So it just things lined up. It was the right thing to do at the right time. I'm happy that I did it. And I'm doing now what I really love to do, which is I'm back to listing and selling, not so much managing. I love writing books. I love teaching seminars. And I get to list and sell. It's like the best of all worlds. But if you want to sell your practice as an agent, if you want to sell your business as an agent, having clearly demonstrable business coming from a
0: clearly identified sphere of influence which you can do from filling out these spreadsheets, that's how you do it. How do you stay in touch with your your sphere of influence, the 250 people? What do you do throughout the year to make sure that your name is top of mind?
1: I probably could do a better job of that. If I have one, I have more than one weakness, but if I was to make a list of my weaknesses, near the top of my list would be communicative. So I probably should do a better job, but mostly by mailing Like direct mailing, phone calling, and socializing. So I'm getting back into, for example, doing events. I'll do, like last summer, I did a wine event. I will go to one of my great listings, and I will invite my share in for a wine tasting. And I'll have a notable, noted wine expert there who will have selected some really incredible wines and people can come and talk about it and try them out and talk to him and, you know, what do you call it, pick his brain? I don't even talk about the house. People have to ask me to see the house because I, I really keep the house only as the venue. But, you know, you connect, you talk, and people talk about it. You can't believe this stuff. This guy flew up from New York. Wine expert came from this place in New York, and da, da 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 da. So I do stuff like that. It brings value.
0: It brings goodwill, and it brings connections. How many events do you do a year? Just one. Just one.
1: I mean, we used to do bigger ones, but now to do more than one a year would be a lot. I and mean, we do some other stuff throughout the year, like like now it's coming up to Christmas time. Our little town has a stroll where we shut down the main street and we do all the stuff that the ACLU would go crazy about. But anyway, um St. Christopher's Charles in the middle of town, I have a crush in the middle of town and we shut the streets down and then all the shops and stores open up and people just stroll from store to store to store. And my office is in the middle of all the stores and so we'll lay out we don't do alcohol anymore. We used to do alcohol in the old days, but now we just have um a punch bowl and cookies and stuff and we'll give out holiday CDs and people stroll in, they have some punch and there's some cookies or brownies and yak, we'll give them a Christmas CD. And so we'll do stuff like that. We'll do another one around Valentine's day around chocolate and do the same sort of thing. We'll do one in the summer, just more low key, more summery kind of stuff. And then we're back to Christmas again. They will do my private one just, you know, one of my listings. That could be wine, that could be golf, antique golf equipment on display. I wanted to do one with cars and in never be able to pull that one off. yet. Yeah, we don't really have any good car dealers in good proximity to this location. But I know like in Florida people do like when Aston Martin rolls out a new model or Montserratti rolls out a new model, you bring it to a house and you invite a bunch of people in to see the new the new quattroporte just came out we're going to unveil it at this listing come and have some wine and refreshments and see the new car it's just great it's just great listing great draw yeah it is i would love to do it here again but the new target came out last summer and i tried to get my dealer to do a it. it's just too far away
0: it's just too far away so i was stuck with wine and driving new cars Jack, you mentioned direct mail for your your sphere of influence. How many pieces do you send per year, and what are you sending out? You know what? People want market updates. People want to know what's for sale. So I'll send out a couple things. One, not a lot
1: of postcards, but I'll do mostly letters with a market update. I'll do things like well, like one magazine I like is called the DuPont Registry. And what you can do with the DuPont Registry is you can buy some ads in their magazine and you can make a deal to buy 250 magazines with a custom cover. So I can put my listing in my name, actually in the cover of 250 magazines and mail those out to my sphere with a, which is, and I can actually put a letter in the beginning of the magazine, which is, it's an unbelievable program. they have. I have no vested interest in Dupont registry, but it's a great program Now other magazines are doing something similar. So, Just anything I can send out that brings value and adds value to my sphere and portrays me as an expert in the business. For example, because we're in a a second home market with a lot of wealthy people, there's a lot of charity events in the summertime. Typically, charity events are auctions. The historical society needs to raise money. The library needs to raise money. The um, conservation group needs to raise money. So they'll come to me and all the other businesses in town will say, can you donate to our auction? And then they'll come into my office, which is a real estate office, and say, well, you really don't have anything to donate. Why don't you just buy an ad in our program? So they're like, well, actually, I don't want to buy an ad in your program. I want to donate stuff. So again, because I have books, I can, I'll can. i put a group of books together and I'll put it in a, like a like, lobster pot. It's got my name on it and I'll, I'll donate the books. Which might have a value altogether of, like, say, two hundred bucks. So that will get to them into the auction. Now, if you don't have books, what I'll also donate, which is worth a lot more money, is I'll say, well, you know what? I'm going to donate. I've got the certificate here. This is good for a ninety-minute real estate tour of our market by boat, complete with wine, cheese, and shrimp cocktail. This is a value of six hundred dollars, and you can auction this off. So. This is the coolest thing because the auctioneer now, that usually is worth enough to make it to the live auction where you have an auctioneer up there for five or 10 minutes saying, Note an author and luxury real estate expert in Austinville, Jack Cotton, has donated a 90 minute real estate tour. See all the greatest listings that have sold in the past three years from the water, from his beautiful boat with wine, cheese, and shrimp cocktail. My opening bid $600. So he, he's up there doing a commercial for 10 minutes in front of all these rich people. Now, once in a while, I have to bid on it myself to get the bidding started. If it doesn't go for enough money, I'm happy to, I'm happy to buy it back for so I don't have to do it. But I still get the five or 10 minutes in front of that crowd. But typically, that tour sells to a bank. And then the bank brings a client. So the how can you go wrong with that? <laughs> so basically, if you again, if you don't live on the water, you could do, you could rent a Woody, you could rent a fire truck, you could rent a balloon, you could do it skiing, you could do. we it with bicycles. You can spin that a lot of different ways in different markets, where you can do something. But what is happening during that auction is my expertise
0: is being sold by third party, the auctioneer, to the wealthy crowd. Which is validating your expertise. Yeah, a little bit exaggerated a little bit too. You try to have them tone it down. But yeah, validating expertise third party, that's way better than the program. How often are you sending out a direct mail piece to your sphere of influence? My goal is 12. My reality is six a year. You mentioned you also do phone calls. Do you have any type of structure there for how many phone calls you want to make either per week or per month?
1: I should, but I don't. I wish I could say I'm that disciplined, but I'm not. And quite frankly, I'm
0: pretty busy all the time. So if I have a goal of 100 and I hit 10, I'm happy. Jack, do you have a team? Do you work with a team of people to help and assist you with this endeavor? Right now, I have two main people.
1: I have like an admin person who helps me with, what do you call that—the admin stuff. I have another agent who works with me, sort of like I'm not going to say a partner, but we work together. We've been together for a long time. And then I have a couple of VAs. Like I have one person who does all my social media. I have another person who does all my agent newsletter stuff. I have a person who remotely dials into my voicemail and email and checks and then sends me an
0: email about my voicemails twice a day. So it's not really a team, but I do have some some help, yes. You said you've been working with an agent for quite a while. What does the agent do for you? How, what's your relationship there? He'll come with me on some listing appointments. He will cover showings that I can't do
1: them. Like, you know, I'm a listing agent. One of my points of difference is that I show my own listings. I'm obsessive about showing my own listings. That's a real point of difference to me in the high-end. A lot of high-end agents don't show their own listings. I do. But and even though I work a lot I can't always be there for every single showing. So Marcus is really, really good and he will cover showings for me. Or sometimes we'll show them together. Sometimes he'll open up and I'll close up. Sometimes I'll open up and he'll close up. A lot of our listings, we have to get, some of our listings take, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes to prepare before showing, you know, the time you get the the curtains open and the lights on, it could take a half an hour to get the house ready to show. You got, you know, ten thousand, twelve thousand, 10,000, 12,000, 17,000 square foot
0: house. You just don't waltz in there and start showing it. Do you have a specific title? Does Marcus have a title? No. No. How do you introduce him to people? Just as your partner or as an assistant? Or how do you do that? I used to say partner, but now that we're in 2014, I don't say that anymore.
1: But I say uh, my associate. I never use the word assistant. Nobody wants to talk to your assistant.
0: Do you have a title for your admin person? Do you also use the word associate? Always. Always. Never use the word assistant.
1: Part of her job, because I'm I'm famous for being a little bit, not totally dyslexic, but I can reverse things. So I try not to make any appointments myself. I always have Maureen make all my appointments because she'll put them in the right place in the calendar. And so... One time this summer, I was really busy, and somebody called me to come with their house, to talk to them about their house. I said Maureen called them to make the appointment, and they were, they were like insulted that I had her call to make the appointment. Now, I'm going to show up personally for the appointment, but they were insulted that I had her call to make the appointment, and so they wouldn't see me. They wouldn't make the appointment. And so I talked to the agent who referred them to me, and I apologized profusely for letting them down, but I said, it's not going to work for me to work with them. If I came to make an appointment with them with my process, this is not a good fit for me. So they went with somebody else.
0: Well, I assume that's rare. That's very rare. And I'm like, I'm just wondering, do they
1: call their doctor and hang up with the nurse answers? I mean, I'm going to show up in person. I'm gonna do everything in person. I'm just like running a thousand miles an hour. I don't have time to make the appointment. And not only that if I make the appointment, I'm lucky to put it in the wrong spot on the calendar and screw it up. So I need someone else to do that for me because I reverse numbers, I can't help it. So I just thought it was if we can't even get together here. I had another one this summer where I actually listed the house, signed the contract. There's two or three family members in a dispute, and the only way to resolve the dispute was to sell this house that they own together. So I listed the house and talking mostly to one family member and the attorney, and then I brought my agents through, as I always do, to preview the property. Well, the other family member called up and said, Did you come to my house today? I said, Yep. And you brought your agents through the house? I said, Yes. And you didn't call me first? He said, No. I I, cleared it. I made a, the appointment a week in advance with you have person in your family. Well, this seller, this partner proceeded to rip me up one side and down the other for like 10, 15 minutes on the phone. I had to pull my car. I was shaking so much I had to pull over it. So she said, have I made myself clear? I said, absolutely. And she said, one more, then she called back. Said, so one more question, is your sign in my yard? I said, ma'am, not only is my sign not in your yard now, my sign is never going to be injured yet because I'm resigning from this assignment to sell your property. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, what? She said, I'm resigning. This does not seem like a good fit to me. If it's, if we're off to this bad, start starting at the beginning. So then of course they're trying to like, you know, so basically if things get off to the bad foot. Nothing gets better over time. Usually in a relationship. So you, whatever it is at the beginning, it's going to stay the same or get worse. So if it's that bad, it's the beginning. I'm out of here. Politely, respectfully, but I'm out of here. Jack, are you profitable? Yes, I'm profit-driven. I probably don't make as much as I should because I do pay my associates more than, I probably shouldn't be saying this out loud in the recording, but anyway. And I also experiment with things. Like I spent 20,000 bucks on a video for one listing so I'll still make a profit when I sell that house when it closes but not as much as I should. I try to keep my total expenses to around, you know, thirty percent of my personal GCI after split with the company so that I can make what I should make. But I like things a certain way. I probably could spend less on things, but you know, I'm probably
0: making like fifty two percent. It probably should be more like sixty two percent, but it's fifty two percent. So when you say 52%, you mean of the, the gross commission income that came in the top after the split with the company and and your staff and all the marketing and so forth, about 52% comes home with you? Yes. Then you think if you really tweaked it, you might get it up to 62%, but you'd prefer to, to run the business the way you are, and and that obviously it works as part of your marketing and perpetuates the business further.
1: Yeah, I'm always looking at stuff. I'm also a little bit like Betty Crocker. I compare myself to Betty Crocker sometimes. She's this kitchen where she goes and tries out new recipes. Well, sometimes I try out new stuff and it costs a lot of money, so
0: it can hurt my bottom line. If it works, great. I'll do it some more. If it doesn't work, well, that was a bad recipe. And sometimes you get a flop and sometimes you get something amazing. Like a $20,000 video. It was a beautiful video, but I probably wouldn't do it again. And it's a lesson. As you said, you learn most of your lessons from making mistakes. I do, unfortunately, yes. Jack, what drives you? I
1: try to be driven by money, although I need a lot of it. But I really, really love real estate. I love the role that real estate plays in the lives of people. I love the whole Oasis of a Storm thing. I love thinking about my tree houses as a kid. And I, every house I go into, I have that tree house feeling when I come in the door, whether it's a mansion or a real modest house, helping people resolve their real estate problems is huge for me. Being the best out there is really drives me, like honing my process, honing my skill. Being really, really good at what I do drives me. And having people say to me, I've, I've sold all these homes. I've never had anyone do it like you did it. That drives me. Having agents say, you inspire me, drives me. I just love the
0: business. Real estate is the best thing on the planet. Case closed. Well, Jack, why have you been so successful? One big reason. Every day, 10 times a day,
1: sometimes 10 times an hour, I ask myself this question. And there are people in my marketplace who compete with me who are better realtors than me, better marketers than me, better prospectors than me, better closers than me, better showers than me, better at everything than me, except for answering this one question and acting on the answer to this question. The question is what is in the best interest of my client? And when I ask that question, the answer to every other question becomes apparent. And when I when I execute the answer to that question That's what makes me better than my competition. And I can put my clients first better than anyone. People pay lip service to it. People talk about it. I do it.
0: Jack, you mentioned a few times during the call that you have some literature. You have a a book or two that you've written. Could you please tell us about the books that you've written and also where folks could locate those books? Around 2005,
1: I wrote a book in one night called A Dog's Guide to Life when my dog died. And I wrote it for my kids to remember him, by. I never thought about publishing the book. My agents made some copies of the book at Kinko's and gave them to me one Christmas. I handed them out, and one day I got a call from a publisher who said I want to publish your book. And so A Dog's Guide to Life got published. It's getting re-released in January by a new publisher. I've sold more real estate from this book than I can even believe. So I figured if I could write a book, by accident in one night. I should write a book about real estate because I enjoy writing and I enjoy teaching and I love this business if you haven't figured that out yet. So I wrote a book called Selling Luxury Homes, which is a roadmap for people who either want to learn how to break into the luxury market or do a better job of treating everyone like a million bucks regardless of the price range. So that's what Selling Luxury Homes is all about. And you can get that at Amazon, or you can get it at any bookstore, or you can go to jackcotton.com and order it from me, and I'll sign it for you. And then I wrote two other books for consumers because I think it helps with their listing tools and prospecting tools. 12 Secrets Luxury Home Buyers Know That Anyone Can Use, 12 Secrets Luxury Home Sellers Know That Anyone Can Use. And Basically, what have I learned from wealthy buyers and sellers that anybody can use in any price range to make a better Home buying or home selling decision. So I donate those books, for example, to first time home buyer classes. And at first, people look at the book and say, These are first time home buyers. Why do they want to read about luxury homes? I said, Read the title again. This is what a first time home buyer can learn from a wealthy home buyer that will help them make a better decision buying even their first home. So to me, it's a commitment to the business of the industry to write these books to help people make better decisions because people helped me with advice when I was starting up that got me through 40 years of selling real estate through three major downturns, the one in 2008 being horrific for most people. And the principles I learned from these wealthy people I think can help any, anybody buying or selling real estate in any price range. And again, you can go to Amazon.
0: Or your local bookstore or jackhoughton.com. Jack, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Build your expertise to five critical areas. Expertise is critical,
1: it's a critical of the high end. But again, if you want to even go in lower price ranges and give those people a million dollar treatment, let them know they're dealing with an expert. Become an expert in marketing and value in your market area. Do that two-year research in your market. And become an expert in markets and value. Establish some benchmarks, cost per square foot, cost per front foot, cost per acre, whatever the case may be. Come up, come up with some benchmarks for your market. But then become, number two, an expert in pricing. How does that expertise that you built in step one relate to this exact property, 127 Main Street? So become an expert in pricing that real estate. Next, become an expert in preparing properties for the market. Some people call it staging. I call it market preparation. Look up the word staging in the dictionary. The the definition includes contrived, fake, make-believe. So I like the words market preparation, helping people fall in love with real estate, build expertise in helping people fall in love with your listing. Next, number four, become an expert in marketing. How do I get the availability of this property out to the world. The buyer for this property might be next door, might be across the street, might be on the other side of town. How do I make them feel that they're in competition with the world because the whole world knows about this house? How do I become an expert in marketing? And lastly, become an expert in negotiating. You have to be a great negotiator in this business because you have to get your sellers the highest price for their home. You have to get yourself the highest fee that you deserve. Those are the five
0: critical areas of expertise you need to delve into and develop expertise in as you're breaking into this business. Jack, do you think the top agent interviews, like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent, are valuable? You know what?
1: I love listening to interviews of other agents. Remember, you probably know Howard Brinton. Yes. I listened to all those interviews. I was inspired by the stars. I learned so much in the stars. I owe such a great debt to the stars who were interviewed by Howard. And I interview every single seller I go on the listing presentation or buy a presentation with. Do you realize, I mean, it, I'm, I'm older now, but when I was in my 20s and 30s in this business, I was dealing with Fortune 500 CEOs. I interviewed every single one of them and learned everything I could learn from them. So if I want to get better at real estate, who am I going to listen to? some guy who's hanging out at the donut store, eating donuts, complaining about how slow the market is, or someone who's doing what I want to accomplish. So interviews of successful agents are, what other better way to learn is there? You want to model success. If there's something you want to accomplish, write down what you want to accomplish. Go find people who are accomplishing that and listen to them. You're interviewing them, so listen to the interview. It's so simple. And then write down two or three things they do that you can see yourself doing. Make a plan to execute those
0: things in order, one, number two, number three, and do it. Jack, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any other parting thoughts for the listeners? Don't be overwhelmed to listen to interviews of agents. Just
1: write down the takeaways, prioritize them, and make a plan to attack them one at a time. I mean, sometimes you can come away with your head spinning after you listen to an interview, but just get two or three pearls from each one, prioritize them, make a plan to execute that. And honestly, most of the pearls you'll learn in these interviews are mostly things you just have to do within your head, aren't they? I mean, they don't involve... Did I tell you to do anything that costs a lot of money today? Not really. I told you to come up with processes. I told you to gain expertise, and I told you to execute process. And I told you to also come up with a mindset that you can do this, that Jack can do this, this goofy kid who started in a next to a stack of toilets in a plumbing warehouse can do this, who made his own signs. Anybody can do this. So what are two or three things you can take from this interview and like for other interviews? Prioritize, make a plan, and execute them. Just do it. Turn off your radio, turn your car into a classroom, play these interviews. Don't watch crap on TV, listen to more interviews, load them onto your phone somehow, and just put on your headphones and listen to them. There's so much negativity out there today, and you can find yourself, I can find myself getting bogged down in negativity, bad news, doom and gloom everywhere. My phone
0: has nothing on it but books, NAR, speakers, and interviews. That's what I listen to. Well, Jack, that's excellent advice. You covered the real estate gambit in your 40-year career. From building tree houses and house forts in the woods as a boy, to starting a real estate company in your college dorm room, to typing 40-page valuation reports on an old typewriter and taping in photographs, to finding a maverick willing to gamble on a long-haired young man, to building a quarter of a billion-dollar brokerage, to selling that brokerage, to investing in property, to writing books about luxury homes. It's clear you have a deep passion and love for real estate and have been rewarded for your dedication. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 312 homes last year worth 72 million. His 7th year in the business. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.